Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Creativity. Here's how to get unstuck. I'm your host, creativity coach, Nancy Norbeck. Let's go. Author Rana Reiko Rizzuto wrote the way many of us do as a child and teen, but didn't truly turn to writing until she discovered, at the age of 30, that her Japanese-American mother and her family had been stripped of everything and put in an internment camp during World War II. The books she produced in her quest to understand these events, Why She Left Us, won the National Book Award. Her two subsequent books, Hiroshima in the Morning and Shadow Child, continue to explore themes of war, race, and historical blindness. Reiko also teaches writing. We met when she became my first faculty advisor in the Goddard College MFA program in 2007. We talk about Reiko's start as a writer, including that pivotal discovery and the quest to learn more, her time in Japan just before and after 9-11 as she sought to learn from survivors of the Hiroshima bombing, and how 9-11 changed their willingness to speak, and how she taught herself to write and teaches her students those same techniques. Here's my conversation with Reiko Rizzuto. Reiko, welcome to Follow Your Curiosity. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So I start everybody off with the same question, which is, were you a creative kid or did you discover your creative side later on? Ah, um, I think I was a creative kid. I grew up in this really small town in Hawaii. Um, we didn't have television. Uh, there was no movie theater. If, if you wanted to have a show, basically you'd have to put on a show. So there was a theater in town where um, the community put on a show and I, I usually got the kid role. So there was that. Um, but I think it was a place where I had to make up my own stories and listen to my own voice if I wanted to hear a voice. So I think I started like writing, you know, making up like kids stories that I would read to my sister and brother or writing bad poetry by the waterfall when I was a teenager, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Um, just like to hear my own voice, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So did your parents have any thoughts about that? Were they encouraging? Were they like, yeah, whatever. She's got nothing better to do, so fine. Or um, <laughs> you'd be doing something better with your time, Reiko. <laughs> no, because see, they were both writers in their own way. Like they they wrote and did other things. Uh, my father wrote um, fishing articles and math books. And my mother wrote about Hawaii pathfinders and cookbooks. And so we were we were very much a... a, a family about words and about stories. Um, so I, I think that they thought it was fine. They probably thought it was better than, you know, breaking my arm or, or you know, drowning in the ocean or something like that. So um, as long as I was fine. One of the things that they did um, get on me a lot about, though, was reading. I just read. I read everything. I read everything I could possibly find. We would go to the library once a week and I would bring a huge stack of books in and I would take a huge stack of books out. And when I was 13, 14, we did this, um, we flew to the mainland. I grew up on the big island of Hawaii. So, so anything, you know, east of us was the mainland. <laughs> um, and we, we got, a uh, we took a, we took a trip across the country. And I think at that time we had like a van that we were pulling like a pop-up trailer with. 
And I sat in the back of the van and I read all the way across the country. And they would say, look at the Grand Canyon. I'd be like, yeah, I'm reading. <laughs> so look at, look at this or that or the other thing. And half the time I would not get out of the van. And that was, um, I got a lot of flack for that. I, I still do. <laughs> you were a little too successful with the read all the time thing. I think so. I think so. And I got, you know, really engaged in the stories. I, I loved them and I was in the middle of them. And, you know, it's like the Grand Canyon didn't come up you know, after the cliffhanger of the chapter. So I had to get there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was poorly timed. <laughs> I'm laughing because I totally get that. Because I think, you know, I was largely that kind of kid. You know, they, mm -hmm. they didn't have to worry about me on the road trip because they'd hand me a couple of books and I'd be fine. Mm -hmm. And every once mm -hmm. in a while, my mom would say, don't forget to look up every so often because she was mm -hmm. afraid I'd get carsick. And I was just like, yeah, whatever, I'm fine. <laughs> you know, never, never had an issue with being carsick. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just, yeah, whatever. Okay, look, it's a road. It's got signs. Yay. But yeah, and the worlds, the worlds in those stories are fascinating and they're just as, as real as the world around you. I think right. for, for me, because we were traveling across the country and I didn't get to have my big stack of books from the library and, you know, the years before Kindle, um, we would stop at, um, gas stations and they would have a, like a pick a book, take a book kind of thing. Okay. So I was I was getting Robert Ludlum and I was getting Jaws and I was getting things that were maybe a little more risque than my parents knew they were. But like I was just <laughs> reading anything. I mean, tons of science fiction, tons of like spy stories. Um, so that was interesting, too, because that's how I, I kind of came to appreciate the many different kinds of worlds mm. and the many different um, voices and stories. So it wasn't just like read the appropriate thing about, you know, the girl who first gets her period or, you know, something like that. It was, it was, uh, it was a big, big universe of story. Yeah. How long did it take you guys on this trip? Cause I'm just trying to imagine how many things you inhaled as you were. We went all the way across the country. Uh, it took about a month. We went up, up the West Coast, and then we kind of went back and forth through Canada and the upper states and then down the other side. And then it was my father's sabbatical. So, um, so we stayed for a year, and then on the way back, I think it was 10 days across just the middle of the country to get away. And then prior to that, I think we had had one summer. But just basically, whenever I got into the car, I read totally get it. I had forgotten how much I did that as a kid. Yeah, that's how you become a writer, right? Yeah. And my mom still does, even if it's like, mm -hmm. you know, the five minute trip to the grocery store. She's got her mm -hmm. Kindle out and she's reading, driving my dad crazy because he wants to have a conversation. Ah. And yeah, so I, it must be at least partially genetic. Yeah. <laughs> so when did you start to take writing seriously? Oh, the question is, do I, do I take writing seriously? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think when I was a kid, I did a lot of writing for myself. And I, and as I said, I wrote a lot of poetry and, and bad stories. When I was, um, when I was still in high school, there was a literary magazine and I became the editor of the literary magazine. But then when I went to college, I thought, well, you know, what am I going to study? I don't know. I, I had no idea and no real interest. 
but I knew that I didn't want to study English. And I don't even know if you could study writing in those days as a, as a major, because I figured I knew English. So why, you know, <laughs> so, I mean, um, felt like a waste. So I ended up studying astrophysics in college. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I yeah. I also remember blowing my mind when I first found <laughs> that. <laughs> well, this is a quick tangent, but just to explain it, on the Big Island of Hawaii, where I grew up, there was um, there's a Mauna Kea at the top of Mauna Kea. There's a science preserve, and they at the time they had two or three telescopes. I think they've got like seven or eight now. Um, but so I, I worked on a telescope at, at one summer, and it was just wonderful and fascinating and I sat in the telescope and I took pictures of the sky and it was um it was cool so I thought well I'll I'll just learn this I don't think I thought I would be an an astronomer um but you know it was something it was something to discover and but so then kind of writing went on the on the back burner and when I got out of school I went to work for a publishing company and I was working in the publicity department with some really, really big name people. And so I didn't write at all because like, you know, you're, you're with Toni Morrison and Vidya Naipaul and Robert Stone and all these people who, you know, are such incredible writers. It's like, well, what, what am I going to do? <laughs> so it wasn't, um, it wasn't really until I was 30 that I, that I decided I had a story and um, what happened was I, there was this big family secret that was kind of also a, a, a national secret, which was about the Japanese American incarceration. And when I kind of learned about that and my connection to that and, and, and the fact that, that basically it was like, <laughs> I learned two sentences and then that was it. Like I needed to find out more. And that's when I started, um, but that's when I decided, oh, I, I could write a book. Like I, I, I could there, there was something worth writing about. So it wasn't just like, yes, I can make sentences, but I can make sentences that are interesting to me, useful to me, urgent to me. Um, so I guess, I guess it would, I would say that, and that was when I was about 30. Wow. Mm-hmm. So I think we should probably let people know that your mother is Japanese and your father is Italian, which must have made for an interesting cultural combination as a kid too. <laughs> So my dad was Italian Irish from Trenton, New Jersey. Oh, um, which is near me. Di- yeah, <laughs> and a very specific kind of like growing up. And he grew up, you know, right after the Depression. His father was a shoemaker, et cetera, et cetera. He was the first person to go to college in his family, and he went when he was sixteen. So as soon as he got out of college, the first thing he wanted to do was get away, <laughs> excuse me, but <laughs> away from New Jersey. <laughs> and so he went to Hawaii. My mom was Japanese American. She was third generation American, but she was born in LA right um, after Pearl Harbor and right before they started rounding up the Japanese American citizens and their families and putting them in these incarceration camps. So she was born. And then a month later, she was in the Santa Anita racetrack in a horse stall. And then she spent the first four or so years in this camp with her grandmother, who was a a Japanese picture bride and spoke no English. So she grew up speaking only Japanese. And then when they got out of camp, the family decided to be hyper American and then she stopped knowing Japanese. So 
the family, um, my mom's side of the family moved to Hawaii where her dad had family. And so she grew up in a very kind of um, multiracial, very loose Hawaiian culture. So the family was Japanese-ish. Um, and my dad was Italian-ish, but they, <laughs> they got together um, in Hawaii. And I think for her, he was, um, you know, he was like, this, this, he had been a model and he was a crew coach and he was three years older than her. So he was like a big guy. And she was just this like tiny Japanese, like free spirit with a 19 inch waist and um, so they had kind of a love affair. And I think that for me, the, the culture of growing up was more, more Hawaii, if, it, mm -hmm. if nothing else. And, and at that time, you know, there, since there is a, there's a strong sovereignty movement, there's a, there's a whole set of uh, Hawaiian schools now for people with that, um, that ethnic background. And there's a there's a, a strong effort to recapture both the culture and the language, which was almost gone. But when I was growing up, it was much more of a, you know, there's Japanese and Chinese and Filipino and Portuguese and some whites you call Howley, and that's about it. And it was, everybody was kind of like a mix of something, and everybody was somebody's cousin, um, and all the doors were open, so you just kind of wandered into somebody's house and yelled for them to see if they were there sometimes just waited for them to come back or left whatever, you know, you meant to leave like your extra papayas or took whatever you wanted. Um, so that was more the culture I grew up in. Wow. Mm. That just, it, it sounds probably more idyllic than it was, but, but maybe it was pretty idyllic. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it was small. And I think in the beginning, you know, and as a kid, that was great because, you know, there's, there's for a long time, there was one, road with one lane you know so people kind of like pulled off to the side as they passed each other so there was really not a lot that you could do to get into trouble so we kind of had the run of the place but then when i got older you know i was living in a in a small town that probably had a maybe a thousand people when i moved there um and and maybe five when i left i don't know um but it, it was it was a small enough town, and then within that town, my dad, my parents both worked at this boarding school. So that was a very small town within the small town. So everybody knew who you were. Everybody knew who you're supposed to be with, and who you are with, and whether you're supposed to be there. And so it became, um, you know, lovely in some ways, but way, way, way too small and stifling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I can see how that would happen pretty easily. So it must have been a heck of a shock to you at 30 to find out about the internment. Yeah. I mean, so I think that, that maybe when I was in eighth grade or something like that, you know, people had mentioned it, but the idea that my, my family was, was put into these camps and that we hadn't really studied it and the and 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 the I, i'm trying to say this in a nice way but basically that the country just didn't acknowledge it you know and that right. there was this narrative of you know americans are the good guys and they're always the good mm -hmm. guys and then 
you know, later, later on, as I was studying like the Japanese American experience in the war, you know, I encountered Hiroshima and the bombing and there too, the Americans were the good guys. And, you know, we're, we're always like saving lives and, 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 and doing good. And then you realize that at the same time, there's all these things that are not so good yeah. that you kind of have to hold in this almost disassociative state, really, to say, yes, Americans are the good guys and Pledge of Allegiance and blah, blah, blah. And my mother was stripped of her citizenship at one month old because she was an enemy. Um, and, you know, the this entire 120,000 people who were, who were incarcerated in these camps there, everything was basically taken away from them. You know, they were, they were given supposedly a week to sell everything that they had, except for what they could carry and, you know, and, and go in to this place where they didn't know where they were going. They didn't know how long they were going to be gone. You know, there was not, not really a reason to actually think that they would lose their homes, lose their farms, all this sort of stuff. And, and a lot of times they lost them to back taxes because they couldn't pay the taxes because they were in these camps and they couldn't make any money. Right. Um, so like it was a, it was a big deal. And, and it was just, it was something that when I learned about it, I learned because the, the United States government had finally decided to apologize and pay reparations. The reparations were $20,000 to every person who was still alive, which was only about half of them at that point. Um, which is not a whole lot of money when you consider, right. you know, what happened to them. Um, and then that was supposed to sweep it all under the rug. And so as I was trying to like, un, like wrap my head around this kind of the stuff that happened and the number of people and, and the scope of it, I just kept running into, well, it's over, you know, well, we made the best of it. Well, we, um, we got, we got the apology, et cetera, et cetera. All this kind of like, sweeping it under the rug and I kept trying to like lift the rug and it kept getting moved and, <laughs> and swept under. So um, I think that was really more than just finding out about it. Um, I think that the thing that really kind of got me going with the story was not finding out, like trying to find out, like, like, like digging for like, why is this a secret? Why is no one talking about it? Who you know, like, who are the players in the story and, and, and why do they not quite add up? And I started talking um, to a number of people because my family wasn't really talking. And then I was hearing all of these stories um, from their families about family secrets and, you know, children who got, you know, conveniently, like, moved to the grandparents' house and out of the family or um, marriages that conveniently, you know, disappeared. Um, so that was fascinating too, this idea that, that there was, there was not just a secret because of trauma. There's not just a secret because of guilt and this feeling of, of, um, self-worth, but mm -hmm. also this, this secret of like, well, that was a good chance to like make up a switch. And then we, we, we want to go forward from there, but there was always this thing of like, let's go forward from here. And I think that for me, besides just like, no, <laughs> yeah, I need to know because that's how my brain works. It was, um, it was also this sense of 
there's a part of me that was is the result of all of this stuff that I don't know about. You know, it's like the way that I learned to be a person is partly how you know, influenced by my mother. And that's going to be influenced by her fears and her opportunities. And, you know, you go down the line. So you have all of this inheritance um, that you didn't even know came from something. So that's kind of what I was trying to get at is like, what does this mean for me? Yeah. I I can't I can't quite fathom how you wouldn't have to do something to figure out yeah. what it means and try to put the pieces together. Is that yeah. why you decided to write the book from multiple points of view? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um because it was like it I was this detective. I was like trying to figure out what happened in some of these stories, so I was creating a family that had like the central question of like, um, it's it's not a secret because it kind of happens in the first chapter, but this woman basically gives up a child. She has two children. She takes one, she leaves one. And then this, this like lingering question of why did she do it? And these are, these are questions that don't get answered, you know? And a lot of times when you find out something like that, that happens in your family, either no one's going to tell you or that person has already passed before people will talk and then nobody actually knows. So you have to kind of decide the best that you can for yourself about, you know, what, what story you can live with. Um, and so that's kind of what I was trying, uh, what I was mimicking. And I, and I stopped myself there and took out the word trying because I don't even know how consciously I was trying. Mm -hmm. I was just kind of following well, if this person knows this and this person knows that, but, but this empty hole was really interesting to me. And, um, and that's what it's about. Um, and it, it's also interesting because when I finally had a draft and I was very unsure of my draft because I didn't know how to write a book because I never studied how to write a book. Um, but I took it to um, an editor that I, that I loved and trusted at Knopf um, where where I had worked and she read it and she said, um, the story that's interesting is the missing story. This, the story of why did this woman leave her child and you should just scrap this whole thing and write her story. And I was like, that is exactly not what I want to do. <laughs> you know, maybe it's interesting to you and maybe that's cause I didn't answer the question, but, um, but yeah, the whole, the whole idea was to, to, to leave it to each character and then ultimately to the reader to make your peace with something. So how did you end up deciding that, I'm trying to figure out the right way to formulate this question. I mean, obviously you, you decided not to take that advice, but mm -hmm. how, how did you, since you didn't really have any idea how to put a book together, mm -hmm. end up taking it from that point until you could get it published did you find somebody who got what you were trying to do and work with them at all or did you just kind of press on on your own um well for starters let me just say that um because i didn't know how to put a book together i just picked up a book that i liked and i read it and i mapped it out and i said okay it, Bastard out of Carolina was the book. This is how Dorothy Allison put this book together. This is where you start. This is where this gets introduced. This is where 
this twist happens. This is how you you finish a chapter. Like I didn't even understand. And here I am driving across the country, completely unable to put a book down. And yet I didn't understand that there was a cliffhanger at the end of every chapter so that you wouldn't put it down. Like it's a device. They teach it in school. Um, But I didn't know that until I really took this book apart and thought, oh, okay, so that's how I put the book together. Um, So, you know, I, I got myself to that point. And I also found in the very, very early stages, like the first year or so of its formation, a a group called the Asian American Writers Workshop. Mm. And it was put together. I think there were six of us. Um, We we met in the storeroom of A Magazine, which is now defunct, so that we could all just kind of sit around a table and read each other's stuff. And that was really helpful, mostly just in the having people understand that the kind of the culture and um, the norms of the people that you were, you know, you were writing about. So I did, I did get some help from friends there and, and, you know, they, we definitely workshopped things, but they were all pretty new to writing themselves. I mean, we were all just kind of trying to figure out how it, how it worked. Um, yeah, I just, I kind of kept shuffling it around and shuffling it around and, um, I had these four threads running from the beginning of the person's story to the end of the person's story. And the thing about that, as you, you could probably already guess, is that the ending is more interesting than the beginning. <laughs> so, you know, if you have four beginnings, you're kind of slogging through a lot of like setup. And um, I think I had somebody who said, well, why don't you turn one of these around? And that really like kind of, blew my mind because then for one of these stories starts at the end and runs through. And then I had to really jigger the puzzle together to say like, so how do I, how do I work with these reveals? So there's not too much revealed. Um, but there's still that sort of emotional call and response. Um, and I think that that was really helpful, but I think it was mostly just, I, I knew what I wanted it to do knew what I wanted it to say. I knew how I wanted it to land and what I didn't want, you know, I think, and that years later, I became a teacher. And that was one of the things that I, um, I still really talk to, to writers that I, that I still work with about is just like making sure that when you get advice, you're not just flailing around and saying, Oh, you want it to be this. All right, I'll make it this. Oh, you want it to be that. Oh, you didn't get that. I'll just like, fill this whole thing in for you out of your personal interest, you really do have to like, hold on to what am I trying to say? And if they don't get it, then there's something there about making what you're trying to say better. But, but it's not, um, you know, there's that line between what the world thinks in, in, you know, in all of your different readers, what it could be and what you want it to be. Sure. But can I just say that I, I'm absolutely amused at the fact that you essentially created yourself a Goddard program <laughs> in order to figure out how to write this book. <laughs> and when, you know, years before, like this was in the, let's see, the first, that first book was published in 19, I was writing it in the 90s. I think it was published in 1999. So it was the middle 90s when I was, just teaching myself how to write. So 
years later, as you just said, I, um, I was hired to teach it at Goddard. I was hired to teach in a master's of creative writing program, having never taken a writing class, let alone having a degree. But Goddard was all about how your life experience can be equivalent to your classroom experience. And I had basically done the Goddard program for myself. I read all the books. I, I looked at them. I took them apart. I learned from them. I figured out how to answer all my questions. Like, it, how do you punctuate dialogue? It's, you know, if you're just reading, you probably don't like think that through. Right. Um, but like really having to look at something and say, how do you transition in time? You know, all of these sorts of things. Um, I taught myself how to do them. And then when I was hired at Goddard, I didn't really, I mean, I hadn't really taught before other than a couple of little workshops here and there. So the way that I, I kind of taught myself to teach was, was also the beauty of the program because it's really an individualized, you and I work together you know, on your project. And I help reflect back to you things that you could uh, maybe amplify or, or point out to the things that you're really good at, whatever those, you know. Um, but it's all about question and answer. So what I learned was, I, I learned what I knew when people asked me a question that I could answer. And I'd be like, oh, huh. Yeah, that is right. I do know that. And <laughs> I record that for myself. That's how you do that. But, you know, it's like, it was all in my head. I had taught myself, but I didn't have like words and names and a, and a curriculum and a syllabus for it. So it was really my, my students, my advisees showing me their work so we could, we could pull it apart together and asking me questions that made me realize how much I knew. Yeah, this is this is shining a whole new light on my experience. Oh, Goddard, I'm sorry. I have to say. <laughs> but but you know, I mean, it I makes think so by much the time sense. you and I met, I did have a number of years. Oh, that's not what I mean. Just just like the fact that that's where you had come from and how you had figured mm. it out for yourself and how mm -hmm. that you know came out when we were working mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. But and and I'll tell you, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I. Like around the end of that first semester, when I, I was still teaching, and one of my colleagues had a student paper and mm -hmm. said, will you take a look at this for me and tell me what you think? Mm -hmm. And I said, sure. And I sat down with it for, I don't know, half an hour or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And I looked at it when I was done and I was like, Reiko is coming out of my hands <laughs> onto this kid's paper. <laughs> I hope you weren't using a purple pen. No, like. I probably was using either purple or green because I never used red. But yeah. but I was. I mean, I just before I took it back to her, I just kind of sat there and stared at it for a second. It was like, <laughs> you know, I was always a pretty good editor, but holy crap, look at what Rico's done to me in one semester. Well, I, I will be proud of that. I just will. Because, and it, it reminds me that when my kids were in um, high school, they used to have to write papers. And I would talk to them about, you know, like planning out, like, well, what are you going to say? And how are you going to start it? And it was sort of a little bit of that kind of brainstorming, but I would let them write it themselves. And then they would bring it to me and they would ask me to look at it. And years later, one of my, one of my kids was like, 
Yeah, and you would you it would be all marked up. It would be like all purple. And it was like, I can't even see it anymore. It's so purple. It's like, hmm, yeah, well, you know how to write a paper now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. But, but yeah, all I mean, of I these think... questions were just like popping into my head and I'm like, yeah. Rako, you're in my brain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm glad for that. Like I'm multiplying like the mushrooms, right? In The Last of Us. <laughs> but I do think that, you know, I one of the reasons I was able to pick up a book and, and kind of dissect it, take it into pieces and map it out, my brain just works like that. I have I have both, I guess, a creative side and a very kind of mathematical scientific side. And somehow or other, when people, like friends bring problems or people bring projects or or you know i'm working with a student it's just like i can see it it's like boop 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 okay you need this you know here's your question okay this is relevant that's relevant that's relevant if you put them together like this there it is it's kind of like working with a rubrics cube or something which mm -hmm. i can't do um but there's something uh, it's just very easy for my brain to see the pieces of a story and to see in in the case of a paper What's there and what's not there, what you forgot to push yeah. down. <laughs> yeah. And and actually one of my my Goddard friends said something to me one time about like how how is it that, you know, you look at this thing that I can't figure out why it's not working. And in like mm -hmm. five seconds you've got because you need this and you need that and you forgot this and you you know, so mm -hmm. maybe maybe that's why. Yeah, maybe that's <laughs> why we worked together so well, because you have that kind of brain as well. Yeah. Wow. So, so, so you got the book published mm -hmm. and it won a pretty big award. Mm -hmm. The American Book Award. Yeah. I mean, that must have been kind of mind boggling since you'd never done any of this before. You know, it, it was, but also I didn't know any different. You know, it's like I, I found my agent by doing the thing that you know they tell you to do which is read books that you love by you know are similar to yours and find out who is their agent and write to them so i i found her pretty quickly i think she was like the fourth or fifth person i queried wow um and she had uh sandra cisneros and julia alvarez and lois and yamanaka and all these women who are writing these multi-voiced um kind of historical, you know, um, sagas. Um, and she took it. And the second she sent it out in two submissions, the second submission, they took it. And then she submitted it for an award and it won. And I was just sort of like, oh, well, maybe this is how it works. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, that seems pretty good to me. Um, and then I, the second book and the third book I ran into, a world where it was like, oh no, that is not mm -hmm. <laughs> at all. Um, yeah, but I just kind of thought, well, people are interested in the book, which was great. I, I had a there was a lot of press at the time um, because it was still one of the first books about the incarceration. There was Farewell to Manzanar that you know everybody read it maybe in school or you know it was for a younger audience. 
And then there was snow falling on cedars, which I ended up with six copies of or something, because every time somebody found it, they'd be like, oh, you should read this. I was like, yeah, thanks. I'm not going to read it till my book is done, but I'll put it with a stack. Um, but really, other than that, there wasn't anything that was just really for adults that was um, like historically accurate and, and really researched. So a lot of people came to me. To kind of ask me to share history, you know, to help mm-hmm. to fill in that gap. So I did, I feel like for two years, I was just being interviewed and asking, you know, being asked questions and, and writing, you know, essays and articles and stuff like that. And then at the end of the two years, it just disappeared, <laughs> which is interesting. <laughs> yeah, because I didn't know that was going to happen either. Like, I, I didn't know how any of it was going to work. Um, yeah, publishing is a, an interesting beast. It is. And, and I will say that, you know, I, I read your book, I think right before graduation, mm-hmm. you know, in that lovely gap where I didn't have to read anything for Goddard <laughs> and I could finally read something for me. Uh-huh. And, and I was so grateful to read it because I knew so little about it. I mean, mm-hmm. it was definitely one of those moments where I was like, yeah, I mean, I think maybe there was like a sentence in a history book one time, maybe uh-huh. a small paragraph. Uh-huh. And that was it. Uh-huh. And and as I read it, I was just so totally horrified. I mean, I knew it couldn't have been a good thing, but still uh-huh. the the degree was just like, good uh-huh. Lord. Uh-huh. So, you know, I can imagine that lots of people had lots of questions because as you say, it was like this, this big national secret, like yeah. nobody wants to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I have always, again, do I put the word tried in here or not, um, but something that's always been really important to me in my writing is to to not just take these things that people don't know about, because I've also written about um, the atomic bombing, I've, I've written about uh, this, a tsunami in Hawaii that nobody seems to know about. Um, it's not just to let people know they existed, but it's it's really to have readers understand the consequences. And in order to really understand the consequences, for me, it's like the human consequences, so I have to put them in a human body. So that book was perhaps difficult to read because, um, because the main characters are suffering. Um, the second book, which was actually a memoir where I went to Japan and I was talking to the survivors of the atomic bombing, was really hard to read because, because I didn't know what the bomb did to people. And that's because the United States government had um, like confiscated all the film and all the pictures and, and classified all of the information. They didn't want anybody to know because then people would have been rightfully horrified and then there wouldn't be an atomic, you know, like a, a whole nuclear arsenal. Um, and I, I really resisted that. So in, in my memoir and then in, in my most recent book, Shadow Child, which is the novel that I, I wrote out of the material I was getting when I was doing my research in Japan, I was really clear that I was going to make this real. Yeah, and I wanted people to kind of squirm in a way. 
um, I was hoping that I could I could capture them with the story, make them love the characters, and then make them squirm. Um, but I do think one of the reasons why my books have a certain audience, but not an enormous audience, is because they are hard to read. It's like, oh my God, this really happened. Oh my God, this is the effect. You know, this is. Um, but I think that that's one of the most important things for me in deciding to write. Well, and I think if you're going to write about that kind of thing, you're doing everyone a disservice if you try to gloss over it. And I also think that fiction is one of the best ways to make it real to someone. Mm -hmm. You know, if you were just writing an essay about it or a nonfiction book, it it wouldn't hit the same way mm -hmm. at all. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. In my nonfiction book, I, I ended up, I, I was living in Japan. I was, I had gotten a government grant to go and, and live there and interview the survivors of the atomic bomb for what turned out to be my third book. Um and I was doing research and I was trying to get like people to um, tell me what happened. And, and really that those kinds of tactile details about what did something feel like? What does something look like? What was the temperature? What was the this? What was the that? And I was having a really hard time getting people to answer those questions, partly because, you know, it had been many years. I think it had been maybe 60 by then. Um, maybe maybe 55, but um, they didn't want to remember themselves. Sure. And so it was, you know, in, in thinking about like, if that had been a nonfiction book and that had just stayed the way it was, it would have been hard because I would have gone to the facts, but I wouldn't have been able to get the the personal details and really like flesh out the stories because mm -hmm. they just didn't they couldn't hold them they were too painful to hold but what happened for me for me what happened in the world um was that i was there for three months before september 11th and i was there for three months after september 11th and the three months before um it was really really hard to get those stories and then when september 11th happened it kind of it really shattered the people in Japan because they had like survived by creating this narrative that they were peace activists and they were telling their story to kind of um, to ensure world peace and that the people in their lives and the, and you know, their, their entire community, all of the sacrifices and all of the destruction all of the death, was sacrificed for world peace. And then all of a sudden there's no world peace. And they're looking at the United States that's going in and bombing Afghanistan because of, you know, September 11th. And they're going, wait a second, like, what is the connection here? Except that these are, um, you know, this is a civilian population. They're indoctrinated, they're starving, they're, you know, they didn't do it and you're <laughs> dropping bombs on them. And that kind of like blew their minds and that opened up story for them that, that let all of these memories come back with all of the kind of like unbearable detail that I was looking for and needed um, if I was going to write fiction. And, and for them at that moment, they couldn't manage 
the memories. And so I had been there for three months and they kind of knew me by then. I've been like pounding on doors saying, please, will you talk to me? And they'd be going, oh, it's too hot. Um, But then all of a sudden they started calling me because I became a kind of a a lockbox where they could pick that up and they could share it. They didn't have to tell their families. They didn't have to be that person who suffered that thing for the rest of their lives by like sharing it in their space. They could give it to me. They could trust that I was going to do something with it in another language they were never going to read. (laughs) And I would go away and I could like take their burden. And so in that case, I did, I think, get some really incredible detail into a nonfiction book that I never would have been able to get if if world events had not unfolded the way they sure. did. Sure. And there's still there's still stories of people. So it kind of has mm-hmm. that that in common with fiction, even though it's not mm-hmm. it's not mm-hmm. just a dry textbook. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It must have been absolutely amazing to watch that shift happen. It was. And there was a time. And, and then, I mean, one. so the grant that I had was, was funded by the Japanese government and the, and the American government, the, the National Endowment for the Arts. And um, because there was Japanese government money, I was always, this, I was always interesting to TV reporters. So, <laughs> you know, um, August 6th comes around and they're all following me. You know, when when the um, the peace ceremony and everything was happening after 9-11, they came to me again and they started following me to my interviews. And there was one interview probably in December of that year where I went and I was talking to this older couple and I had a friend of mine who was a translator there. And they had lost, and and there was a TV crew. Um, They had lost two sons who were five and seven. And I had two sons back in Brooklyn, like watching the paper fall out of the sky after 9-11, who were three and five. And they were talking about, um, and and there was a picture of these two boys, like there's a, a painting above their heads. And they were talking about, what happened that day and they had left the boys and they were supposed to go to their grandmother's house and, um, you know, they got hit. And I think one of them tried to save the other one. And then it, they both died. And the father was, um, responsible for taking the bodies to be cremated. And there were so many bodies that not all of them burned. So there were like, like there was like, parts of a leg or something like there was parts of the bodies that were not cremated. And he said, like, I couldn't tell my wife, she could not have bared it. And I realized even through like the fact that my friend Keiko is doing the translation stuff that as he tells me that she's hearing it for the first time, Like he's never told her this and he is weeping and she is weeping and I'm thinking about my boys and I'm thinking about 9-11 and I'm weeping and there's a TV crew it's just like taking the whole thing. We finally had to kind of send the TV crew away so we could just like mm-hmm. be together. But that moment of just like holding space for the fragility of these children, you know, and and like the the horrible sorrow when something like that happens and it just was 
just was amazing. And I, you know, I don't think that there are many, I mean, I can't think of many nonfiction books that you can write about that level of an experience, unless it's your own personal memoir, mm. you could dive into it for that, but just like about what's going on for somebody else. It's, it's, um, I felt a real responsibility to get that out into the world. And so even though I had gone there to do um, interviews for a novel that I was going to write, which I did eventually publish many years later, um, I realized that I had to write a memoir about what was happening there because I just, I needed these stories to come out to honor these people the way that they were, you know, in their truth, instead of just like, grinding them up into some kind of like fictional mix and and throwing them into another book. So they actually came out in the memoir. And then I, I obviously pulled on that material for the novel as well. So. Wow. Yeah. And somewhere in all of this, you were teaching too. (laughs) I loved teaching. I really, I, I loved teaching and I still kind of, Teach. I, I still do create, uh, you know, creative coaching and working with individuals. And I just said yes to uh, um, a visiting professorship at uh, City College in New York in the CUNY system. I'm going to be doing a fiction workshop for their MFA program in the fall because I just, you know, get 12 writers around a table again and talk about their work. It's just a really fun thing for me. Um, but I am energized, I think, by teaching because of what I said to you. You know, we get to look at this material, we get to pull it apart, and we get to think about um, what if this and what if that? And there's a nugget here that's like really shiny and really something that, you know, wants to be born. And, um, you know, when I first started teaching, because I was a new teacher, I was working with like people's questions, like, how do I do this? And I'd be like, well, you do it this way. And, And in a way... You know, in the very beginning, I thought that, well, teaching someone how to write is is about those mechanics. It's about those rules. Like, well, this is how you punctuate. This is how you do this. This is this is what the plot generally looks like. It's not what your plot has to be, but you should know what the plot generally looks like, like so you can break, you know, the rules deliberately if you want to. And then at some point, I just realized that teaching, the best teaching that I think that I did and probably still do is just about helping someone see what they have in their hand. And so they can own it they can figure it out and they can, they can respond to it and bring that story into the world. Because if you get that story down and somebody has to go through and fix your punctuation, that's, that's not the hard part. The hard part is like um, that urgency for like that story that only you can tell. You know, if I'm if I'm teaching in a master's program, yes, you do have to punctuate. I'm not <laughs> I'm not saying that, but um, and so there was a little bit of a hybrid there. But the part of the teaching that I love that's really exciting is that part of like like what do we have here? What's being birthed into the world, and what does it mean? And how does that connect to? You know, you might be writing something about just talking to someone about a, a book that that's sort of set in the world of. AI, social media, uh, 
young adults, you know, something like that. And it's like, yeah. And look at how that connects to, you know, fake news. And look at that, how that connects to this. And look at how like our society is, is separating in this way and see how your story, you know, and, and then it's like, oh my God, that thing that's like, like fascinating me in my head is connected to everything. Cause that's the thing, right? We are all connected. And the stories that I think really pop are the stories that um, people read it and it touches them because it touches something that's going on in their lives. Could be, it doesn't have to be like, oh, this is a story about adoption and my dad was adopted. But, you know, it's just like, yes, that separation. Yes, that loneliness. Yes, that desire. Yes, that um, that terrible choice. Um, and that's the thing that I really love to kind of nurture and play with. And so um, being able to help writers get there, that that's just energizing to me. Sure. And I'm, I'm remembering the day that I got, I think it was the third packet back from you, which was when I was still believing that I was ever going to be capable of writing short stories and enough of them to get a diploma. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my, my dad's mother was busy dying. And so totally like distracting from everything. And I had this bit of a short story that I had actually started like a month before Goddard, just because I hadn't written anything for a while. And I decided that that was my backup story, that if something happened and I couldn't get everything else done because grandma was, you know, um, that that's what I would send in. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I ever expected to hear was, first of all, this is not a short anything, which I believe were your exact words because they were <laughs> tattooed on my brain. <laughs> and then... And by that, <laughs> and then the words, this would be a great thesis if you wanted to do that. And I'm like, that means I have to totally shift gears. And oh, God. And I had to, like, you know, stop and think about it for a couple days before I was like, yeah, sure. Cause I probably can't write that many short things anyway. Cause this is not a short anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, that definitely wasn't a short anything. But I think, you know, there's a difference between being a creator and being in a program where you have to do a certain thing in a certain way by a certain time. Right. And that was, that was always the, the tension there. But I do think that when you have a story that it, it's just time for that story, you know, you're, you're connecting to it in a certain way. The urgency is there. The passion is there. Like you're in that world. It's not that it writes itself because it doesn't, but the way forward has has a flow to it. You can get to that flow. Um, and it will it will go. Whereas something else, if you're like, yeah, but I've got six short stories already and I just need three more. I don't know what to write, but maybe this. There's just no flow. There's yeah. just no way forward. And then you're just struggling. And it could take you longer. And it could sure. just not be as good. So I, I do think that... Um, when you when when I hear sometimes I I talk to people who are like, well, I I know I'm supposed to finish this one because it's almost done, but I really want to write this one. It's like at least you get that one out. That one. You know, you, yeah. you need to go write that one. And even if what you need to do is that there's a bunch of stuff that's built up in your head about it and you just get that part out and then the block is gone and then you can go finish this because some some people can 
you know, juggle multiple things in their head. I am not so good at that. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, you, there's, there's no point in struggling against creativity, right. you know, and, right. and imagination. Totally agree with that. So I'm curious to know what it was like for you to be at a place like Goddard and be around all of these other writers who were also teaching, especially since you hadn't taught before, but even over time. What it was like to be with the other faculty. Mm -hmm. To be in that environment. I I mean, that was, it was one of the best, definitely the best job of my life, you know, and, and, and I mean, I loved my students and I, I loved teaching, but I went back year after year for the faculty and we, we got together and we were friends and we supported each other and we listened to each other's readings. When I went there the first time, um, because I didn't really know, I mean, I had given a couple of workshops, so I knew that I could give the the workshops and, and kind of lectures that I was signed up for. Um, but I, you know, I, I hadn't really, like, I didn't have a lot of writing prompts and exercises for my advising group. So I went and asked one of my colleagues, like, in this very suave way, what is your favorite writing exercise for the first day? <laughs> and she gave me a bunch of ideas, you know, and, and then I went to Deborah Vavort's uh, plot workshop, like, which was about, you know, she's a playwright, but she was talking about the dramatic clock. And I was like, oh, hey, I have a dramatic clock in my memoir. I'm going to use it. Like, I didn't even know that. And then I went to Rebecca Brown's workshop on um, one of Michael Andaji's really kind of beautiful fragmented books. And she she went through the whole plot in this really interesting way. I went to Rachel Pollock's Tarot for Writers workshop. It's the first time I had ever encountered tarot. Changed my life. Like a big part of what I do now is tarot. But they were all so generous in just letting me sit there, letting me absorb, showing me what they did. And they were always like, really supportive and really um everybody was just kind it's kind to everybody else so one of the reasons that i got my memoir published because i had a, a an agent who i'm just going to say was not able to find mm-hmm. a publisher for the book um rebecca was like i have this friend she used to publish me and we brought her in as a as a visiting professional, and she said, "You're going out to dinner with me, you know, and and Amy, and you're gonna tell her about your book." And I was like, "So Amy said, so what are you working on now?" And even though the book was finished, I just started telling her about the book because that's what Rebecca had told me to do. Mm-hmm. And she said, "You should send it to me," and I did. And she was, I mean, that was a fantastic experience, but. Like I found her because one of my colleagues, you know, um, it was, it was incredible. I mean, you would think perhaps that there would be some kind of competition among big name writers. Um, There was never anything like that. There was just support. Well, and that's what it was like for us too, Mm. you know, uh, among ourselves as students, but also with faculty. I don't, I don't remember ever. Okay. I may have heard one story where there was an issue, but you know, for, for the most part, 
we would sit around the table at dinner and like hash through what we were writing for advising groups the next morning or, mm-hmm. you know, I'm trying to do this with my book and it's not working. And what do you guys mm-hmm. think? Because, you mm-hmm. know, we'll see what Reiko thinks, but we'll see what you think, you know. And, um, <laughs> Absolutely. The floor and, you know, the yeah. and, and it was just not like what I was afraid of when I first thought about well, applying for an MFA program. You know, yeah. I thought this is going to be one of these things where you just get slashed to pieces in a workshop every day. Mm-hmm. And I'm not interested in spending a whole lot of money for that. Right. And and Goddard was just never, ever like that. Yeah. 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 Because that just stunts you. And I mean, that's not good for you. No. I mean, that's, that's the thing that, you know, immediately, um, as a, you know, even as a first day teacher, um, that if you, if you can help someone see what they need to do, then you've helped a writer. If you tell them what to do, or you tell them that they've done it wrong, what have you done? I mean, the, you know, I, I'm there to help somebody finish a full length manuscript of acceptable publishable quality in two years while reading 45 books and doing a teaching practicum, right? I, you know, there is no time and no room for me giving you writer's block. That's just not, you Right. Know. And you're probably working a day job at the same time too. Right. Right. But what, yeah. but if I can teach you how to teach yourself, how to answer your own questions, how to read your own work, if you can't read your own work, how to read the books on your shelves, so that you can remember, you know, what you need to do, then you are, you have lifelong skills and you have lifelong teachers. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it works. So (laughs) 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 God, I miss Goddard. So what are you working on now? I mean, you said you have this workshop coming up for City University, but what, what else is going on? So I have that, which I'm excited about, and I do some, you know, creative coaching. I do some uh, book readings with the tarot. Like I, I, I do brainstorming with people using the tarot to help them sort through their books, which has been fascinating and really rewarding um, because I think the way that I work with tarot, which might be familiar to you since you know, Rachel Pollack is the person who who taught me everything that I know about tarot. Mm-hmm. Um, like she always said that you, the tarot tells you what you already know. And that's perfect for a book because the writer is coming in. They know everything. They just can't access it. So, so I do a lot of that. Um, I have two manuscripts that I have been struggling with for a while. One is done. And I think it was maybe before it's time and it needs some, some work. And it's a, possibly young adult fantasy, which is, you know, brand new to me. And I had to teach myself how to write it. I think it's still stuck in the world building stage a little bit too much. And the other one is a, um, a memoir about my parents. Um, I'm calling it the garage Mahal. My mother, (laughs) my mother had dementia. She got dementia when she, she started losing her mind when she was 55. And she died when she was 68. And during those 13 years, my dad took care of her. Um, and one of the things that he did is she started to kind of lose her memories is that they, on every Saturday, they would go to a garage sale 
and they would, and he would buy things and she would, people would give her like plastic bead necklaces and various things. And, um, she loved blue glass. So there was a lot of it in the house. She, you know, anything blue, he bought her a blue car at one point because it was on the side of the road. And she said, mine, it was only $4,000. So <laughs> literally there was a part of the underside of the car that was zip tied together. Um, but he bought it and put it in the front yard so she could point to it. Um, but so by the time he passed away, um, there were five buildings on the property that were full of, like he just went crazy at the garage sales. So it's kind of like about Alzheimer's and love and hoarding and, and a certain kind of slice of America, um, you know, care, caregiving and loss. Um, and I've been working on that for a, a long time. I, I, I do it in a spurt and then I put it down for months and then I think, do I really want to write this? And then I go and I do another spurt. It's, it's a hard one for me because I think it changes every time I go back to it. Like mm. in the beginning, I thought, this is a love story. And then I thought, God, I hate my father sometimes. And then that was hard to write a love story from. <laughs> and then it's like, well, well, is it about the two of us? And I, and I think it's still like shifting, shifting, shifting. And I haven't quite figured out what it is. My father used to send us um, emails called the garage sale find emails. So every week we would hear all the stuff that he picked up, oh, wow. but then we would have pictures of my mother. So we knew that she was okay and she was happy. And then there would always be some stories. Like one year he picked up um, a model Jaguar XK140, which um, was the car that he had when he met my mother. And then I was conceived a couple months after they were married so he had to get rid of the car because it was a two-seater so when I showed up he had to get rid of the car so that was like the first bad thing I did um <laughs> but he told this story about like the car and like times from their courtship so embedded in all of these garage sale finds emails are all of these stories of their courtship so he was giving us the memories as well so there's this whole thing about memories and found and missing and and intangibility and tangibility and um yeah so i'm working on that too wow yeah i'll be i'll be curious to see that one when you finish it when not if when. <laughs> <laughs> you want to give me a deadline <laughs> you know the biggest surprise to me of being at goddard was that deadlines are absolutely magic yeah I yeah. had no idea before then, but there were so many packets when I was like, you know, I had 10 days left and I'm going, it's never going to happen. There's no way I could possibly get all of this done. And somehow it always did. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't necessarily even tell you how it happened, but it happened. Mm -hmm. So I'm just yeah. saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. You, you do need, and this is a thing that I'm struggling with because it's the thing that I know to do. I have done it before successfully. I'm not doing it right now. And I'm just like noticing that I'm not doing it. You need to open the portal. You need to have the practice of saying, I am here, I, you know, showing up. Um, and sometimes it comes through easily, but if you keep on practicing that, it starts to come through regardless. But I think that as much as there might be, you know, a higher self or a story sitting there or, you know, however you think about um, where stories come from for you, if you're not 
open, it's not going to come. It's just going to wait behind the door. And I think that that's the thing with me in this uh, book about my parents. It's like I, I'll go in and I'll do a bunch of writing and I come out and I kind of close the door. It's like I, I'm not sure if it's that yet. And so I'm just going to kind of sit back and wait. So that's what the deadlines give you. It's like, oh, damn, I have to get four pages, 10 pages, whatever it is, this day, this hour, this week. Yeah. Um, I have to go there. So it's that like you, it, it takes away your, um, your resistance to some extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Though it never, it never felt to me like, oh, I have to sit down and I have to write five pages that I really? can recall. It just, it was just like, okay, I'm going to do this now, you know? And, and somehow, like I said, magic, because stuff was just suddenly there. And I was like, oh, look, I'm done. Time to go to the post office. Yeah. Well, you had, you also had a two year container. That's the right. thing. It's like, you had to have it done. And the more time you spend on short stories, the less time you have to do it. Which you is know? why it's good that I sent that story in the third packet and not the fifth one. Yeah. 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 A lot of people who, who didn't find their material till the end of the first semester ended up with another semester. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think the pressure is always there when you have that kind of deadline. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe at a certain point you get used to it, you're writing every day and then the portal is just always open. Yeah. Whatever it is, I've, I've never forgotten that. It's like, mm-hmm. no, you know, when people tell me, you know, I deadlines freak me. I'm like, okay, but deadlines are actually your friend. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't let them get all up in your head, they're mm-hmm. totally your friend. Things will get done like by magic. If, mm-hmm. if you respect the deadline. If I try to set a deadline for myself, mm-hmm. that I will totally blow off because it's just right. for me. Right. But, you know, so it's like, it needs to be a credible deadline. It needs to right. be set somehow or with someone right. that you don't want to disappoint. Right. Yeah. Right. That's, that's one of the reasons why um, co-writing spaces work. Like some people, especially mm-hmm. during COVID would just say, we're going to make a date. We're going to get on Zoom. You're going to write. I'm going to write. But we're going to be on Zoom. And I might be over here. You may or may not see me, but I know you're there. And that right. helps you stay in the chair. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about holding space that th- that's what this time is for. Mm-hmm. That is a little miracle worker, too. Yep. Yeah. Well, I really have loved this conversation because it has given me a whole new view on Cotter. <laughs> but but also just to, you know, get a chance to see what you've been up to and yeah. where you came yeah. from and all that kind of good stuff. So thanks for coming and talking with me. I I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. That's this week's show. Thanks so much to Rana Reiko Rizzuto and to you for listening. Please leave a review for this episode. There's a link in your podcast app. And in it, tell us about a time when a need to understand something changed your life. If you enjoyed our conversation, I hope you'll share it with a friend. Thanks so much. If this episode resonated with you, don't forget to get in touch on any of my social platforms or even via email at nancy at fycuriosity.com and tell me what you loved. And if you're feeling a little bit less than confident in your creative process right now, and you haven't yet signed up for my free email series on six of the most common creative beliefs that are messing you up, please check it out. 
It'll untangle those myths and help you get rolling again. You can find it at fycuriosity.com, and there's also a link right in your podcast app. See you there, and see you next week. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. Thanks. Thanks.